0: When Raul told me he was going to use that song before the message, I said, that's usually an after-the-message song. And then I got to thinking, no, that's really a good before-the-message song, too. Um, Reminded me of the first sermon I ever preached. I was in Bible college, traveling with a music group, and all of the guys were supposed to take a turn preaching. And uh, I had recently really gotten right with the Lord and finally understood what it meant to dedicate yourself to the Lord. So I wanted to share that message with people. And I uh, I came up with a uh, an illustration that I used, and the illustration revolved around tennis rackets because I uh, I played tennis in high school and I played it, I didn't play competitively in college, but I enjoyed it, and and I said, uh, you know, uh, the middle of the racket is what's called the sweet spot, where you want to hit the ball, you know, right in the middle, and. When it comes to dedicating our lives to the Lord, a lot of us give God a racket like this. We say, okay, God, you can have the whole racket, but I'm going to hang on to this sweet spot that I really like, and it's going to be mine, and I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's what I had, uh, I had been working with the Lord on that basis for most of my life. And in the last year before I got right with the Lord, that's what I was doing. I was offering God the whole racket, except I want to hang on to this piece. And I want to hang on to that piece. And finally the Lord said, look, give me the whole racket, the whole business, and uh, and then I'll make something out of your life. And, uh, and so I used that to preach that message, and it occurred to me today that that's the message that Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 5, or getting across to everybody, but in particular there's a contrast with the Pharisees. The Pharisees offered Jesus the racket with the hole in it, offered God that hole, they said... They said, here's how we want to live, and Jesus came along and said, I want you to give me the whole thing, the outside and the inside of your life, and we're learning about that from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and this week we're in verses 21 and 22, but let's back up just a little bit, starting in verse 17, and understand the theme of this part of it, this section Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven or earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven for i say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the pharisees you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven now if you weren't here the last couple weeks what we understood was jesus fulfilled the law by bringing it to completion by bringing it to its intention and the intention was to bring people to him so they would believe and be transformed and their sins forgiven not just covered by the old testament sacrifice And he also brought it to completion in the sense that God gave the law so that people would know what righteousness was, and now in Christ they really, truly can live righteously from the inside out. And so here he's just said that. He said the scribe's righteousness, essentially, as we look at the whole of the Gospels, it is an external conformity, but what I'm after in you is transformation that starts inside and works its way out. And in the next, in the next passage of scripture, um, from verses uh, twenty-one, actually through the end of the chapter, he's going to give a series of about six examples of what he's talking about. And and so he says in verse twenty, you've got your righteousness can't just be like the Pharisees, the external, but it's got to be internal. And so in verse twenty-one, he starts this pattern of you have heard it said, but I say to you. And we're just going to look at the first one today. Verse 21, you have heard it said by those of old, you shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And so Jesus starts off by talking about the area of anger and murder, and he says, essentially, and and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, and I think it's justified, but essentially he says, now the Pharisees are saying, as long as you don't murder, you're okay. As long as on the outside you haven't picked up the gun or the knife and taken a life, then you're okay. But I'm telling you, your righteousness has to go deeper than that to the issue of anger on the inside. And so we want to understand a little bit more deeply about what God says about anger, not just from these verses, but from several in the New Testament. And so where we're going to start is this. We need to understand that anger is not inherently sinful. Uh, Inherently means within itself. It is not a sin to be anger. Anger is a response to injustice that is possessed and used by God and part of our God-created human nature. It is a response to injustice. And using the word injustice, I could have used the word something that is wrong, something that is done wrong by one person to another, uh, something along that line. We understand that God possesses anger and acts in anger. Psalm 711, God is a just or a righteous judge, and he is angry with the wicked every day. Our mental image of God doesn't usually include anger. Uh, Many people, especially in the world, think of him as the great white-haired grandfather in the sky who's benevolently passing things out to people. But this scripture says God is angry with the wicked every day. From Mark 3, This is Jesus himself when he had looked around at the people who were there with anger, being grieved. You want to say, why was he angry? He was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was healed. In other words, these people were mad at Jesus because he was going to heal on the Sabbath day or some of the other things that he said and did that they didn't like. And he was angry at them because they were more concerned about their ideology than this man getting healed. There is such a thing as righteous anger. That's why God says, be angry, but do not sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but we have to be very careful about that. God doesn't say, don't be angry. Because anger is the internal response to something that we perceive to be unjust. Now, the real, the real kicker there is perception. There are many things that we perceive to be unjust, and we'll talk about some of those as we go through today. But we need to understand, as Jesus begins to talk about anger, it, 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 at first, it sounds like he's condemning anger completely, but he goes on to give some explanation, and we'll touch back with that in just a minute. Why then does Jesus condemn anger? And I would say this first of all, because anger is often conceived in sin. In other words, much of our anger is not righteous in its origin. Some of it may be, but much of it is not. There could be many sinful thoughts that lead to anger, and I've chosen just four of them to talk about, four that I would consider the more common ones, more common sources of sinful anger. And the first is jealousy, and I've chosen to define jealousy this way, wanting something or someone all to yourself. Do you remember this episode from the life of David? Now it happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that's Goliath, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with the tambourines, because it would have been King Saul and the armies and David, with joy and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and they said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry. Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that a distressing spirit came from God upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house so David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Jealousy, anger, attempted murder. Jesus said it's not enough not to kill people. You need to take care of anger and what goes with it down below. Wanting something all to yourself. You know, this is an especially harsh action by Saul because why did David kill Goliath? Let me put it this way. Who asked for a volunteer? Saul did. Saul said, whoever kills this man, I'm going to give him this and this and this and my daughter in marriage. David did not do it for that reason why did David do it because God was being blasphemed and spoken against he said is there not a cause so he goes out there courageous and kills Goliath and the next thing you know Saul's trying to kill him want to know where murder comes from that's one of the places it comes from jealousy you want to keep out of prison deal with your jealousy What's the second source of the conception of, of sinful anger? Well, envy. <clears throat> Jealousy and envy are very similar, but envy seems to be in the Bible wanting what somebody else has. Wanting what somebody else has. Here's a great example of it from the life of Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah and his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Joseph went and said, the boys have been bad. You can call it tattling, you can call it uh, being loyal to your father, you can call it whatever you want. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a tunic or a coat of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And they could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream. Now, people make a lot of different things out of this dream, but know this, folks, that dream was from God. That was a divine revelation because later it all comes true and only God could do that. This is not, Joseph just didn't have some vision of grandeur this was a God-given revelation. Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear the dream which I have dreamed. There, were, by, there we were, binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. That must have made them happy. And his brothers said to them, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. In case you don't know, he had eleven brothers. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. His father knew enough about God to know that's not an accident. But his brothers envied him. They wanted what he had he was the favored son they wanted that and so they hated him and of course eventually they plotted to kill him mmm is there a pattern here wicked heart wicked action murder Of course they sold him into slavery this reminds me of a famous event in sports history yes you know this picture had to be taken before, right? Not after. This is Nancy Kerrigan, who went on to win the silver medal, I believe, in the Olympics in skating that year. And this is Tonya Harding, the person who wanted to win the gold medal. And so what did Tonya do? She uh, conspired with her boyfriend and some others to attack Nancy Kerrigan, and they, they beat her on the leg with a, with a, uh, you know, a, a nightstick or something like that. Okay? That's envy. She wanted what Nancy had, and she was willing to go to physical blows to get it. Envy. There's another word, we just read it quite a bit in the passage with Joseph, but the word hatred. Hatred is used in Scripture to mean the dislike of another person uh, based on a personal standard. Now, Now, what I mean by that is we all have certain things we like and don't like. Those things may be right or wrong, but Hatred is when we say, I don't like this person because. One author defined it this way, malicious or or evil intended and unjustifiable feelings toward others. Listen to these words of Jesus. Jesus is talking to the people who hated him. And he said, if I had not done among them the works or the miracles which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Uh, I would submit to you that hatred is often based on things that are not really a cause. Now, in particular here, we think about Jesus. Why did they hate him? Because he did miracles. Well, why should they hate him for that? Because they couldn't do it. A little bit of envy there thrown in. And because he was pointing people in a direction that they did not want to go. And so they didn't like him. They said, I don't like his system. I don't like what he does. I don't like anything about it. They hated him. We make statements like this today. I just don't like him. Well, why? Well, I just don't like him. He's a Hatfield Nyma McCoy. He's a Democrat or he's a Republican or he's a lawyer or fill in the blank. He's of a certain ethnic or religious heritage. I just don't like him. That's hatred. You should call it what it is. There's a fourth one that I've chosen to highlight today, and it's greed. Greed is the sinful pursuit of my own desires. And I, and I put that word sinful in there because it's certainly not wrong as a believer in Christ to pursue things that you think God wants you to do. Um, not wrong to pursue uh, being married, have a husband or a wife. It's not wrong to pursue a job. It's not wrong to pursue an education. None of that is wrong, but there is a time when I am, can be controlled by my desires, not controlled by God, and I am pursuing things because I want them, and nobody is going to get in my way. In James, he said this, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? Now, he's not talking about like sexual immorality so much. He's just saying you have personal desires in your human life and he says you are pursuing these things then the result is there are wars and fights I mean it's as simple as a family at home and and uh, you know somebody's got to get up and turn off the light well I don't want to do it I did it last time you know when I was a kid it was get up and change the channel on the TV Get up and turn the volume down. Get up and turn the volume up. I was the remote control. (laughs) And we think, I don't want this or I want that. And and it's all about me. Where do wars and fights come from? They come from your desire for pleasure. That war within within your personal life, within your group of people, you lust or you desire and then you don't have You murder and covet and cannot obtain. And I think James is using this word murder along the lines of of this Matthew passage because surely he's not writing to a church and saying, you murder people when you don't get your way. I think he's talking about the murder of, of anger and hatred and all of that. You know, you, 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 you assassinate people's character. You murder and you covet, which is another word for envy, and you cannot obtain. You fight and war, and yet you do not have because you do not ask God. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may it on spend it on your pleasures. Now here's a specific example of greed that leads to sinful anger. From Third John, I wrote to the church, the Apostle John, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, who loves to be the big dog, he does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words and not content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to be putting them out of the church. Diotrephes loves to be in charge, and what does he do because of that? He uses malicious words against people like the Apostle John. Okay, That's greed that has gone to seed and become sinful anger. Anger doesn't arise in a vacuum. What I've just attempted to show you is that anger can't, has a source. It can be jealousy, envy, hatred, greed, or could be other sources. Even if greed is based in a genuine wrong, if we were really wrong, or excuse me, if anger is based in something really did happen to us, we were the victims, we still have a requirement from God to express ourselves in a godly way in those times. So anger is often conceived in sin, but part of the reason Jesus is condemning it, it is is often expressed in sin. And the greatest verse that summarizes this, I think, is Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That is a list of all of the different kinds of expression of anger that are sinful. There is a righteous way to express it, but we're talking about the sinful way today. And the first of those is bitterness. Bitterness literally means to cut or to pierce. When we have been wronged, there is a temptation to, to strike back, to strike out, to, to even the balance. Responding to anger inducing situations in a way that cut or pierce other people. The second word is the word wrath a boiling agitation of the feelings. That's literally what it means. Um, I've heard people say it makes my blood boil. When you get really angry in the inside, something is just working you over. God says that's wrong. He says if it's gone that far, it's gone to sin. Anger. The word anger here um, literally means, uh, it's it's the idea of of cultivating that feeling, cultivating that response um, rather than dealing with it. The word clamor is an interesting word. It, It probably literally means yelling. Or the, the display of anger in words. And, and I've put a big term here for you. It's an onom, it's onomatopoeia, or an onomatopoetic word. It's a word that's taken from a sound. And so the sound that this is taken from is literally the sound of a raven, which goes, Caw, ca, ca. And the word in Greek is kraga, kraga, kraga. And it doesn't mean anything other than that sound. And so the idea is that when some people get angry, they're going ah. King James calls that clamor or or yelling. God says that's wrong. Evil speaking. Um, the word is this same Greek word is often translated translated blasphemy. And it literally, the word blasphemy means to speak something evil against somebody else. When it's, when it's used toward God, it's almost always translated as blasphemy, but it could be evil speaking. And this is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5, to pur- purposefully hurtful communication. Look at Matthew 5 when he says, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka... Now, the word raka is another uh, uh, odd word in the Greek language. It doesn't have any, any uh, kind of literal translation into English, but it probably means, I mean, any term that you would use along this line to call somebody a blockhead or an empty head or a stupid head or any of those kinds of words is kind of the essence of what it meant and then the next word there is the word fool and that's the classic word for fool or moron as it comes into English and that word in Greek means to be slow or to be dull and it's usually applied to the mind so to have a slow mind or a dull mind now I I don't believe Jesus is using three levels so much as he's sort of giving he's giving uh, sort of a broad spectrum he says if you're angry If you say raka, if you say you fool. And I think this is the whole idea of evil speaking. Now, I don't remember the exact word that I used, but I called my son-in-law a fool or an idiot or stupid in a joking way when his mother and his grandmother were sitting across the island in our kitchen and being from Salvador and not maybe understanding English as well as, as the rest of us, she thought I was calling her son stupid. And she was offended. And uh, he probably was too because he, he didn't know whether I really liked him or not yet. <laughs> and I do. <laughs> and I didn't think he was an idiot. You know how we say people joking around, you idiot. Okay. This is talking about saying that for real. This is talking about looking at somebody and saying, you are an idiot. You are a moron. You are an empty head. There are times when we say those words and we mean it. You know when we say that and mean it? We say that when a car pulls out in front of us. You idiot. Yeah, you know it. You're laughing. You know you do that, don't you? You you stupid head. Now, we don't generally say those things to one another in the spirit of meaning it. We say it jokingly. But those are specific things that Jesus said, if you talk like that to people and you mean what you are saying, he said, that's a sin. And then going back to Ephesians 4, there's one more word, and it's the word malice. Malice. And the word malice means any kind of moral evil. And it's used with the qualifier all. And it seems to be that that God said bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, or all kinds of malice. In other words, he's not saying if your your expression of anger doesn't fit on this list, you're okay. He's saying, here are a whole series of common expressions of anger, sinful expressions, and any kind of moral wrong is also a sin. Now, we've looked at the sinful sources of anger and the sinful expressions of anger. How do we keep our anger from becoming sinful? That's what we really need to understand today, isn't it? Well, we need to understand this. Anger must be spiritually regulated in cause and expression. In other words, if if we're struggling with jealousy, we've got to deal with it there. Or if we're struggling with it on the expression side, we've got to deal with it there. We've got to deal with them both. And so I've given you several statements that that I hope will stay with you and you will meditate on this week. And the first is this. We must choose confrontation over defamation. To defame somebody is to talk evil about them. You know, it's, it's that word evil speaking that we just looked at. Jesus said this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That's confrontation. We don't like the word confrontation. It sounds big, it sounds terrible, it sounds heavy, it sounds hard. We don't like it. Uh, put whatever word you want there. Just go and talk to people. Because sometimes you find out the thing that was making you angry really wasn't a thing. I, had a, I got a letter from somebody in my last church, and boy, it was a page long full of anger. And I thought, where did this come from? And I called him up. I said, hey, could we have lunch and talk about this? And so we did. And, and we got together, and his, for a year, he had been meditating on, in anger toward me because I didn't say his name every single time I greeted him. So sometimes the church I'd say, Hey, how you doing? You know, I'd shake his hand. I'd talk to him. I mean, our our church was, was not this big. I talked to every single person every Sunday. And I, I said, I got no ill feelings toward you at all, you know, and, and and I'll tell you right now, and I'll tell you right now that sometimes I can remember details of your life, but not your name. And sometimes I can remember your last name, but not your first name, and sometimes your first but not your last. And it has nothing to do with evil thoughts. And he went, oh, okay. There was I, uh, there was nothing going on here at all, and so there was restoration, because he came to me. But if he'd have come to me a year earlier, how much better would he have felt? I didn't. I wasn't having a problem during the year, and so call it confrontation. Call it call it checking things out, if you want. Because the attitude we need to go in, the Matthew 7 attitude that we'll talk about later, is an attitude where, where we don't go thinking, I know everything that's going on, and I'm here to really poke it to you. I'm coming here and saying, brother, you said this, or you did that, or I've, I've seen this. Can you help me understand that? Because here's how it's making me feel. And so you check it out. And, and then, of course, Jesus says, if, if you really talk to them, and, and they will not admit they're wrong, you need to take it on from there, and so on. But I've also written this statement this way. We should choose confrontation over defamation. There's only one person you should talk to about a wrong that is suffered. There's only one person you should talk to about a wrong that is suffered, and that is God or the person involved. And maybe I should say there's only two people you should talk to God and that person. And that's hard for us. It's so much easier to go to somebody who's sympathetic and say, Boy, do you know what so and so said, what so and so did? And God says, No. Get this thing taken care of. Number two, we've got to choose contentment over covetousness. Contentment over covetousness. Listen to these great words from Hebrews 13:5. Let your conduct be without coveting or envy or wanting things. And be content with what you have. For he himself, God himself, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do I need to dislike others because they have something I don't have? Do I need to speak poorly about people who have a position above me at work? Do I need to envy those who win the lottery? Or can I just enjoy what God has given me and where God has put me? until he takes me on somewhere else we need to choose forgiveness over bitterness forgiveness over bitterness Matthew or excuse me Ephesians 4 let all bitterness wrath anger clamor and evil speaking Uh, that's the verse that we just looked at but we're going to carry on to the next verse now let it all be put away to put it away is is God's description of what we do with sin we we have sin, we put it off, we put it away, and in place of it, we take on righteousness. So he says, get rid of these things, and what do you do in place of it? And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. We have to choose forgiveness over bitterness. Bitterness is when we hang on to the hurt and we meditate on it and we think about it and then we act on it God says choose forgiveness Jesus on the cross we read it this morning he said Father forgive them for they know not what they do did anybody ever deserve to go to hell any more than the people who nailed Jesus to the cross? no have the people who have wronged you done something worse than those people did? no We've got to choose forgiveness over bitterness. A famous preacher of years ago, Harry Ironside, made this comment. Just get quietly into the presence of God and then you will be able to look at things from a right standpoint. Isn't that great? When we're all in our anger and our bitterness and whatnot, we're looking at things as a human. He says, get into the presence of God. Then you will see things correctly. He says you will see things from a right standpoint, and as you think of your own failures, of the many, many times that God in grace has forgiven you, it will make you very lenient as you think of the failures of others. And instead of getting up on the judgment seat and judging another believer, it will lead you to self judgment, and that will bring blessing whereas the, o- the other is only harmful to you and your own spiritual life. We've got to choose forgiveness over biz- bitterness. Lastly, we've got to, or excuse me, not, second to last, we've got to choose release over revenge. Release over revenge. Listen to these words from Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. We could just stop right there, couldn't we? we? Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live, in, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And the best understanding of this language really puts it this way. Give place to the Lord's wrath. In other words, when you step back from avenging your wrong, you step back and say, okay, God, I'm going st- to be in you. You take care of them in your time and in your way. You let God be in charge of that because he is in charge of that. God says that making people pay for their sin is his job, not ours. And we need to let him do his work The desire to make people pay for their sin in some measure is a genuine response. I mean, we can think of it in terms of crime. Somebody commits a crime and we think, boy, that guy's got to pay for his crime. That's a genuine response. But this scripture says it's not our job. It may be a genuine response, but it's got to be on God, not us. The last of my, my short list here of of regulating cause and expression is this. We must choose humility over pride. Humility over pride. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. It's very easy for us to get wrapped up in our wrong. We've been wronged, and, and people are walking on us, and, and I have got to protect myself and establish myself. I can't let this go on. And, and God says, yeah, you can. Jesus committed no sin. He did nothing wrong. <laughs> nor was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, when people spoke evil of him, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to God who judges righteously. That's what humility is. Humility is not walking with your head down all the time. Humility is when we say, God, vengeance is your job, lifting me up. Call it self-esteem, call it whatever you want. Lifting me up is your job. My job is to let go of these wrongs. My job is to forgive. My job is to release, and it's up to you to take it from there, both for me and for them. That's humility. Jesus was angry at sin and injustice, but he never became angry at personal insult or affront. Read the goofiest article this week. The article wasn't goofy, but what happened was. A man from Ferndale was sentenced Thursday to more than two years in prison for breaking a jogger's jaw in a road rage attack last summer. Court records show Gavin Haggith was driving his Ford Taurus on the Brown Road. Um, When the car, uh, excuse me, was driving his Taurus, when the car swerved toward, I'm getting this wrong here now. Yes, he was driving his car when the car swerved toward the roadside coming within about four feet of a jogger. So he's driving down the road and there's a jogger and he swerves toward him. The jogger flipped him off. Haggath slammed on his brakes, fishtailing the car. He got out and ran toward the jogger at a full sprint. In full view of the neighbors, he punched the man, breaking his jaw. Witnesses scribbled down the license plate of the car. They tracked him down. He's going to go to prison. And I would assume that all of you would say, Oh, that's crazy. That's terrible. Oh, people shouldn't act like that. And that's what the Pharisees said. And Jesus said, It's not good enough. Your righteousness needs to go all the way down to that level to where when you're driving down the road and you see that jogger, you rejoice with his physical exercise and slow down or move over or do whatever you have to do because he is a child of God just like you are and you wave and smile and go on your way. That's the righteousness Jesus is talking about. Not the righteousness which takes pride in the fact that, well, I've never broken a guy's jaw, so I'm okay. We're not okay unless we're okay from the inside all the way to the outside. Jesus says that's the kind of righteousness that I'm talking about, and I would encourage you to consider that today as we take God's word with us. Heavenly Father, help us. We have all been angry at those people who take up too much of the road, quote-unquote. We have all been angry at people who do various things to us. We've all had hurts. We've all had offenses. And now we've heard that Jesus says we need to deal with our anger on the level of our soul and then let it come out in righteous behavior. Help that to be true of us. Help us to grow in that. Help us to honor you, body and soul. I pray in Christ's name, amen.